Amen. I want to talk to you about the seven servants, the seven servants, and the table of duty and devotion, the seven servants in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, I'm going to tell you one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. There's something about, uh, uh, therapeutic, I guess, when you become a pastor. You get to share all these embarrassing things now when you get older. But uh, I remember in high school, how many people would like to go see a concert where every person who just showed up in the band just started playing their own music at the same time? Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, nobody would ever go see that. Uh, well, I've experienced it because I did it. So in uh, growing up in high school, uh, Beth and I, we did uh, marching band and jazz band and concert band and symphonic band. And so I played the trumpet all through school. And uh, one of the things I was asked to do one time was to do something called sight reading. So what they do is they take a small group of uh, instruments, like 10 or 15 of us, and they take us to this uh, state college and they take us in front of judges and they say, here, here's a piece of sheet music. You have five minutes. You've never seen this before in your life. You've never even heard this song before. You have five minutes to read it and then we're going to play it and we're going to judge you on it. Let's just say it was as awful as it sounded, and I never did it again because it was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done because we sounded awful, mostly me. It sounded awful. I was so embarrassed. I mean, I just felt my face was, you know, people in the audience, your face is, you know, you're sweating, it's red, you feel hot, and you're like, I got to get off. Whatever I do, I got to get off this stage, and I will never show my face in public again. That's how bad it was. And so, needless to say, I never did it again, but you know, in a band, in a group, uh, every person has a part. And it's up to that musician, when they come to a band like that, that they have practiced it, they know their part. And even in, if you get into a big band, every instrument group, trumpets, clarinets, saxophones, they all have unique uh, music. They've all been written for, for that song. And then in each group of that song, if you know this or not, like in the trumpet section, there's a first part, second part, and a third part. In that group, has, the trumpets have their own type of music for that song. And then in each trumpet has a different type of music, first chair, second chair, or third chair. And it's up to each person to come to that place having practiced. They follow this conductor. They have to stay on tempo. They have to learn their dynamics, know their part, and then play it in unison. It is very complicated, actually. That's why when you listen to these uh, classical music, man, it's just amazing how this all comes together because each member has a duty and a devotion. They have a responsibility to that band to make the whole band sound good. It matters. If one instrument is going off crazy in left field, it's going to all sound bad. And they have a devotion to their team. You know, it's the same way on any sports team, any group, any uh, gathering, like even a family. So what do you do when your family, for instance, has conflict? What do you do? Moms and dads, when you and your mom, everybody's been complaining. Let's just say everybody's been complaining every morning. It's just been a bunch of nagging. And Billy or Susie's never picking up the room. And what happens? You just, your blood pressure begins to boil after your 57th sock you're picking up off the, you know, living room floor. Come on, parents. You know what I'm talking about? You know, there's just, I can't pick a single more piece of clothing. If you don't tiss this up, I'm going to, you know, da, 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 da. you know, you go on and you just let them have it. Well, what do you do? You come to, as you get older, you have these family meetings. You say, hey, for this family... To have a good day, we all have to do our part. And I'm tired of picking up the slack of everybody else, right? Mem people begin to conflict in your family. You say, hey, every member in this family has to take their own dishes to the sink. Otherwise, mom's not going to be happy, right? 
Come on, moms. Right? That's how it works. We all have to do our part because this is how families work. Every member has a duty, a responsibility to do my part, and a devotion for this family to be a whole unit, a whole team, a whole unit, like just like a band, just like a family. Well, most people don't realize the church works just exactly the same. We are a, a team, we're a band, we're a family. And this family needs every person to know their role. And you know, it's, most people, I think, don't really know how the church works or what makes the church work. Uh, we can show up, we can claim a church, we can get a membership role at that church, but really not have an idea about what my role is. What's my duty? What's my devotion in that church? We can think of a church as an organization uh, with paid professionals that do the programs and we show up and we, you know, hey, cash in on the enjoyment of what happens. And this, it's like Disney. It's just the magic happens when you show up, right? And that's the organizational part. And it's true. Churches are an organization. But really, do you know that churches are an organism? Churches are the only spiritual organism on the face of the earth. And every organism, like every body, like every person, has a unique members. And every part has cells, and every cell has a purpose. And this beautiful thing begins to happen as every cell, every person, every part knows who they are and where they belong and what they're supposed to do. Let me give you an example. In biology, there's this big word called differentiation. And this big word actually just means that when a very immature uh, cell or very, very immature being begins to grow, its cells begin to multiply and they get specialized roles. Like, for instance, your body, you've got your lungs, you've got your brain, you've got nervous system, you've got your uh, uh, lymphatic system, you've got all these different systems. And all those cells have to do their part, know their place, and work together. And that is called differentiation. It means simply growing up to maturity. So look what Paul says in Ephesians 4, before we get into our text, he says, and he gave some to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we, what, all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Here's the key part, to mature. Somebody say mature. mature. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is he saying? We can be a mediocre church or we can be a mature church. And a mature church is where every person knows their duty and devotion. They're differentiated. They, are, they know that we're all together, but in, in our own ways, we all have our own roles and our own part to play in this beautiful symphony we call church, in this wonderful united family where we're all going in the same direction, and it's called Jesus Christ's body. This organism is the body of Jesus Christ. And there are brain cells and tissue cells and nerve cells and blood cells. All that body has unique parts doing their thing that God has made them to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you and I respond to the Holy Spirit on the inside, the Holy Spirit says, I have waited for the day that you have been called for a time such as this. This is your purpose in my body. And I want to fulfill the power on the inside of you to live it out. And when you begin to do that, man, God is going to get all the glory. And it's going to take us from being mediocre to mature. So what do we do? Like when I said that the band began to play its own part or the family had conflict. How many people have been a part of church conflict before? Yeah, right? Don't raise your hands, okay? You're probably, you might be here because your last church you had conflict. 
How do we deal with church conflict in a family, in a body, in an organization, in a band, in a team? Acts chapter 6 is a perfect example of that. So look with there, there with me. I want to talk to you about finding your spiritual service. What is your table and how are you serving at the table? What is your spiritual service? Let's talk about seven servants. If you're there in Acts chapter, one, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, somebody say amen. amen. All right, so here's what happened. Let me give you the background. The Holy Spirit has just immersed, immersed, baptized, immersed thousands and thousands of believers. Man, it's almost up to 10,000 believers in just a few months. 10,000 people have been converted and saved and filled the Holy Spirit and baptized in water. And they are meeting from house to house. And man, they are sacrificing uh, their, their time, their talent, their treasure. They're loving one another. They're meeting and breaking bread in small groups. They're meeting in the temple. And there's these 12 apostles who are leading the whole thing. But 10,000 people, that's a big church in just a short amount of time. Can you imagine planning a church just a few months later? It's 10,000 people. And there's only 12 of you. Can you imagine all the things that have to be done, like whose house is where, and how do you get there, and who's teaching what, and what book of the Bible are you, who, who is this guy, I don't even know if he's qualified to be a teacher, can you imagine, who's, we got 30,000 people who are hearing the gospel, and, and how, how is this going out, and you got people, and there's like a row of 50 people about to be baptized, well who's going to baptize them, and where's the water, I mean there are all these things, can you imagine, all the things that were happening, and when this gospel was being preached, and there were many people began to sell their possessions and give to the widows and the poor. But something happened. And let's look at there, Acts 6.1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking people, arose against the Hebrews, the uh, Jewish people, because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you have Greek-speaking Jews who have come into Jerusalem, and you have Hebrew-speaking Jews who have come, who live in Jerusalem, and they've just become Christians. So two types of people. And when the twelve summoned, sorry, and arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, 10,000 people. That's a lot of daily distribution. How many of those were widows? How many of those were poor? And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's handle the money tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or good witness, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Somebody say duty. To this duty, so you can underline that. That's what our verse is about. But we will devote, there's a second word, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose some people. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte or a convert from Antioch. That means he converted straight from being a Greek to a Jew and then to a Christian. And these set before the apostles, they prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, the people who had opposed them, became obedient to the faith. This church turned a church conflict into a church victory. I love that. That what could have been meant for evil, God turned around and meant it for good. So how does the first century church handle a inner dispute of church conflict? How do they handle being a family and being a body? Well, like I said, you have 10,000 almost saved. 
Can you imagine all the new believer discipleship, the teaching of doctrine, the organization of homes, how much food had to be prepped, where are we gonna get this stuff, where's the tables coming from, Billy's got a table, bring his truck around, he's got 15 tables, and, and John's got 47 tables from his barn over here, and can you imagine just trying to get all this stuff to there? So no doubt, these 12 men were overwhelmed, overwhelmed, and a grumble a grumble arose by these foreign Greek-speaking Jews that some of these Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. And I look at this and say, well, maybe it was an honest mistake. Can you imagine? There's a lot of people who can fall through the cracks when all this crazy chaos is going on. Was it an anonymous mistake? Was it intentional? Was there maybe some prejudice against foreigners and Greek-speaking widows? Maybe they were like, well, Sister So-and-So, she's been here for 40 years. We've always been giving out this food, and these new people come. So I'm going to feed Sister So-and-So first, and then if I get left over, then I'm going to give it to these people who just moved here, because I love Sister So-and-So. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was a lack of workers. Maybe it was a lack of communication. But you know, all that really doesn't matter, because the Bible doesn't say what matters is that, listen to this, for the first time, for the first time, this baby church was no longer in one accord. Unity had been the foundation of this great revival. They were together in one accord and the Spirit came down. And they were together in one accord and the house was filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were together in one accord breaking meals and fellowship. And for the first time, this church was not in unity. And what did they do? They said, we're not going to sugarcoat this. They knew that backbiting and bickering and blame was one of the worst cancers a church could face when that root of grumble, just like in Moses' day, began to divide and cause judgment on the body. They said, let's get it out in the open. And so they said, they called everybody together to say, how are we going to handle this? What did they do? They prayed for seven servants. They prayed for seven men to rise up and help them be the church. They prayed for a layers of laity. They prayed for mobilized members. They prayed for a team of teams, somebody to step up to the plate at the table of duty and devotion. Who will serve? Let me give you several layers. So like just like a sandwich or a cake or any good thing, it's got layers. There's Three layers I want to tell you today about these layers of laity, how they mobilize their church to win in a day where they could have easily been losing. So the first level is this, is the level is vision. The first level is vision. Vision says, what's the goal? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? You know, every, every good team needs a team captain. Every band needs a conductor. Every family needs a family leader, a father or a mother who is setting the pace for that, that family and looking ahead to say, this is where we're going in the future. And the Bible says that the apostles had that job. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. They were charged with teaching right doctrine, making disciples, but yet here's what he finds himself. He finds himself doing the best he can just to stay afloat and people are falling through the cracks. And actually, he begins to risk neglecting his prayer life and his preaching ability. Just a chapter before, you find Peter, he's there, he's in a tent, and he's handling all this money coming in with Barnabas and Ananias we talked about. And that's where you find he's taking in this money, and he's, this land, he's taking the money, and he's giving it to people to distribute it to the poor and to the widows. And this is taking up all of his time. So look what they say. As he's risking his prayer life and his preaching, he says, guys, it's not right or it's not appropriate for us to neglect or abandon the ministry, which that word right there is service. It's not right for us to neglect the service of the word of God 
to serve tables. That's the money table. It's not necessarily like, he's not saying, I don't want to be a servant. He's saying, my job is to do what God's called me to do. And he says, so we're going to serve, get this, we're going to serve the bread of heaven, but I need people to serve in the church the bread of earth. Our job is to continue to serve the bread of heaven. Someone's got to do this job, but this other job, I don't want it to be neglected. People are falling through the cracks. People are complaining. There's grumbling. The church is going to risk splitting. So what do we do? I am praying for men to stand up. So I'm going to give you my job description and your job description, all right? This is not something I like to talk about because it feels weird for me to tell you what I do. And then I'm going to talk about what you do. Uh, what is the pastor's duty and devotion? In the New Testament says, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. What does that mean? To do the work of the ministry. I am here to equip you to do what God has called you to do. That's my job before the Lord. That's my duty and my devotion. He says that my duty and devotion is to pray and to preach. He says in Timothy, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with patience and continue to teach. It means that I'm supposed to manage my household well and this household well. I'm supposed to encourage you and exhort you, even correct you and write doctrine to be the people God has called you to be because I'm working on me and I'm helping you work on you. He even says, he says, a pastor's job is to be absorbed in the study and the distribution of the word, to pay close attention to my teaching because I'm ensuring salvation for myself and for you. I will answer to God for how I lead this church. That is not a light thing that we take in our staff lightly. Man, I will answer to God for how I pastor you, how I teach, for my doctrine that I give. For every sermon that goes out from this place and goes online around the world, I will answer to God for that sermon, for that message. I will answer to God for how I cared for you and direct you. You know, uh, I read an article just this week that in October 2021, after the COVID uh, outbreak, 38% of American pastors felt like giving up. 38% of American pastors today think about seriously quitting ministry. Why is that? I actually read an article from a pastor who quit and he said this, he said, the job is hard in a way that whoever, if you've never done it before, you couldn't understand because it can wreck a pastor emotionally. Pastors worry every day about the people and the programs they're in charge of. They're always on call. We never take a weekend away. We live in a fishbowl with hundreds of eyes always watching, never knowing what people are regularly thinking unless they complain. They often, we, uh, pastors often care for people to the point that they have nothing left for their own family when they get home, and they're expected, that family's expected to come to church perfect and spiritually put together. Pastors often feel empty while they pretend to feel full every week, and every week they present themselves and all their work to hundreds of people for evaluation, and if they get feedback, it's often, quote-unquote, constructive criticism. That's one pastor who quit. Now, I'm not saying that, that for empathy in any way. I'm saying this calling is my calling and my burden to bear, and you have a calling. Hebrews says that every person who is a pastor or a leader or a teacher is going to give account. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. You know, I, I've been doing this full-time ministry thing for almost 15 years. I can tell you this because I talk to pastors. I'm one of the, I'm the president of the Ministerial Alliance. I'm one of the presbyters in our section in the state uh, for Louisiana District. Uh, I can tell you that every pastor takes criticism personally. 
I can tell you that every pastor stays up and thinks about it and rehearses every thought that's ever, or every word that's ever been said about them for years later. I can tell you that every pastor, every person who leaves their church, they weep for, they groan for, they pray for. I can tell you that even in our staff, we have regular conversations about the people we see falling through the cracks at our church. People that we say, man, they used to attend here faithfully, but where are they now? We weep, we pray, we groan every week of this, uh, every day of the week. Me, Pastor Christian, Ms. Evan, we walk these uh, chairs, we walk through these pews, I touch every aisle and pray for people who I know sits there. That is my duty and devotion for you because I'm called to that table and that's what I'm called to do. And I thank God for a family and my wife who's called to that table with me. The burden for a church is such a degree that no one who's ever had one I even told Pastor Chris when he got hired, I said, I mean, you're about to enter into something that God is about to give you 40 young people, and you're, you've been trained, you've been gone through ministry training, but when you get these kids, you'll understand what I'm talking about, that those souls will be your burden. And I can tell you, going from a young adult ministry to a youth ministry to a senior pastor ministry, the weight of the burden of your souls is always on my shoulders every single day, 24 hours a day. I don't say that for sympathy. i just saying, I understand how these apostles were. Guys, we can't do it alone. The burden for a church is too much for one person to bear. And so when Paul, uh, the apostles look here, they say, guys, we're called to do what we're called to do, but we need you to do what you're called to do. You see, I think if too many pastors begin to do the work in the church, if we, if we begin to do the jobs of the church, we can't focus on our preaching and praying, so then we all lose in our church. If we, do, if we try to do too many jobs in the church, then we come home without being able to rest, our family loses. So the responsibility of a church, this scripture is leading us, says there are layers of ladies. So what's the second layer? The first one was vision. That's the pastor and the teacher's roles. The second is mission. Mission, I love. Mission is this next level. It says, how are we going to get there? How are we going to get down the road? And this often is focused to specialized lay leaders. These are the people who become the burden bearers of the vision. They get the vision. They join a church like, yeah, I believe in where this church is going. So I'm jumping in feet first. I love people like that. They're like, yeah. I'm like, those people are on the winning team. Man, they're, they're those people that we can just champion like our volunteers in our church. Man, they're like, I want to be a part of what this church is doing. And it's every church needs a few good men, right? In Exodus chapter 18, remember that story where Moses... Moses is leading like a million people. He's like, I can't do this. So he goes to his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro says, man, what are you doing? You can't, you're not meant to do this whole thing by yourself. God has got people for you. And he says, here's what you do. Take everybody and put over them anointed men, men over hundreds and fifties and tens and, or twenties and tens, fifties and tens, over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens, and they're going to help bear the burden for you. So that's what happened. So here's what these apostles begin to do. They say, hey guys, we are responsible to what Jesus has called and anointed us to do. But in this body, we are seeing these people fall through the cracks. We're people that are not being reached, and we need to do something. So what are we going to do? Let's pray. I'm praying for people to step up. He says, give us men who are of good witness. Look at these qualifications. Good witness. That first word is marteo. It means martyrs. Give me good martyrs. I want men who are willing to die for Jesus Christ. Men who are willing to stand in the public square and just preach the gospel. He'll do whatever it takes. People with some grit under their nails. Man, people who are willing to get dirty and work for Jesus Christ. I want martyrs. Men who are willing to be Christ-like servants of God. And he says that that rude servant there is uh, the word that we get later on in the, in the Gospels for deacon. 
He says, I want good witnesses, good martyrs. Number two, I want men who are full of the Spirit. That means completely occupied with the Holy Spirit. I want men who get up in the morning, women who get up in the morning and are thinking about Holy Spirit. What do you want us to do today? Holy Spirit, how do I go through my day? Holy Spirit, I just, uh, we, we're gonna go down to sleep at night in the presence of God. People who are wholly consumed with the habitation of being the temple of God, that they are full of the Holy Spirit. Look where they begin to pick and think about men. So this church begins to think about who they are. They think about Stephen. The Bible says Stephen was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you're going to see in the next chapter, Stephen was a guy who was already preaching on the, he didn't have a title. He didn't have a position. He just had a reputation. Come on, some, that's, that's good right there. He didn't wait for somebody to give him a title before he started doing the work. He was out in the public squares preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says even with signs and wonders following. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a deacon. He wasn't an elder. He wasn't a Sunday school teacher. He was just a guy who was doing what he was called to do. Even it says Philip was another man. They, uh, you'll learn about him in Acts. And Philip was later known as the evangelist. Philip would be a guy who would go across country to reach people across the line. He would go from white churches to black churches. He'd go from Greek speaking to Jewish speaking. He would go across all into the Samaritans, people that nobody wanted to deal with. Philip was the guy. And he was already doing it. I want men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Leaders who don't wait for titles because God is going to appoint people he's already anointed. They begin to appoint the anointed. And lastly, he says there's wisdom. It means they had discernment and loving unity. We want people who are going to work for the loving unity of this church. I think these are great qualifications for every level of ministry at our church and any church. People who are Witnesses of Jesus out in the public square before they're ever on leadership at our church. People who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are thinking about the Holy Spirit throughout their days. They listen, Holy Spirit, where do you want to go today? Holy Spirit, who do you want to talk to today? They have people who are, have wisdom and discernment knowing this is a God thing, this is not a God thing. I'm going to order my household, I'm going to order my life with God things versus secular things. And they say, I am willing to work for the unity of this assembly. I don't want anything to divide this church. And that's what they're working for. If you notice in that passage, guess what? Look at all those names. Now, you and I probably don't know Hebrew and Greek, but you know that every single name, catch this, is a Greek name. Why is that important? You got this split in this church between Hebrew-speaking people and Greek-speaking people. And when this church nominated to the apostles all of these seven men, they nominated only Greek-speaking people. What does that mean? That means that the Hebrew-speaking people gave up their responsibility. They gave up their, their vote. They gave up, hey, I want somebody to represent me. I want somebody on my team. I want to fight over. We've got to have 50-50. You know, I want three people here, three people there, and like their Supreme Court. We break the tie, right? They want somebody to fit their political agenda. They want to say, no, we want the unity of this church so much. We believe we're going to elect every person from the minority to make sure that not a single person is missed to the crack. Greek-speaking uh, widows, maybe they were getting messed, so let's pick every single one of them to be a Greek-speaking man. It was the opposite of self-seeking. They forsook their own representation to reach more Greeks. I think that's powerful, powerful. We live in a world of PR and equal representation. But this church said, we want to make sure that no one is left behind. You see, in Romans 12, church, it says, and we are one body, we have many members. We've got different gifts, but the Holy Spirit has given each of you, somebody say each, each of you, the power and the grace of God to use that gift. 
God is looking for in this day, especially in the world after COVID, God is looking for mighty men and women of God who are already full of the Holy Spirit, people who are passionate about God. They're saying, I will do my duty. I'm going to do what's required of me. Number two, and I'll be devoted. I'll serve faithfully. Every church has a mission to reach this world, and it's not on the shoulders of pastors to do it. I'm going to just be honest. It is not on the shoulder of any pastor in this parish to reach this community. It is on the shoulder of every member in the body of Christ. It's on the shoulders of someone to say, I will stand apart. I'm not just going to come through here to see a show, hear a guy speak, and go to another church when they don't fit my bill. I am coming here to serve and do my duty at the table of service. I will answer to God for what I do. I know that. But you will answer to God also for what you do. Lastly is the third level is values. There's the vision of where we're going forward, and that takes pastors and leaders and elders in the church to set the vision for the church. Then there's people who take the mission of the church and own it, and they bear it on their shoulders, and they run that race with endurance set before them, leaving everything aside, and they say, let's go, family, let's win this city for Jesus. Then there are the rest, the body of Christ. And this is probably the most, listen to me, this is the most important part, the most important part, because this is everyone from young to old. This is the values part. You see, it was the values that made up the healthy community of faith. When the Holy Spirit immersed every single person, all, the Bible says all, every single adult in that prayer meeting was immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Guess what the natural result was? Prayer, worship, devotion to the Word of God. They began meeting from house to house, having potlucks, having communion, worshiping day by day, praying. They loved to pray. They began naturally just sacrificing one of one another. Like, I don't need this extra car. I don't need this extra barn. I don't need this extra piece of property. Let's just get rid of this stuff. We're all going to burn anyway. Let's win more people for Jesus. And they began to sell out for this call, this gospel call. And they began to love people with the fruit of the Holy Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience and gladness, that just began a part of the natural part. It, it, you look at churches today and you come in and you're like, what in the world is wrong with these people? But when you went to the first century church, it was like, this is the best place in town to hang out. Sunday morning at that church. Man, it doesn't meet to any bar. It's not any ball game. Ain't got nothing on what happens in the unity of love and gladness when God's people show up together. Somebody say amen to that. That's our prayer. He says, this is the value. This is the values that come from being a spirit-filled people. Love and sacrifice and worship and gladness. But the, one of the values here that shine the most is finding a place at the table of service. Look with me in John 13, just real quick. John 13, verse 4. You see, there is a table set for all of us. The Bible says that Jesus, he arose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel and tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And wipe the towel with the towel that was around him. In verse 14, he says, And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So my question is, what is your spiritual act of service? This is not a literal thing about literally we should always come into church and wash each other's feet. That means that every person 
in the body of Christ. He says, if Jesus was willing to come down to earth and humble himself and make himself of no reputation and to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he hung there publicly for your sins and he died for your shame and he bore it to Calvary for a joy set before him. He endured it knowing that you would be with him forever in paradise. So if God's son did that for you, how can you not serve one another? How can you not come into church and know Jesus said, this is a command I give to you. In this body, serve someone else. Humble yourself. Think about other people in this body, in this family, in this team, in this band. We are not a, a band that comes in here and we all play our own notes and instruments. We're not, a, we're not a, a family that comes in here and leaves our socks laying around and expects other people to pick up the socks after us. We are not a, a body that is going this way and that way, but we are something called the spiritual house, the body of Jesus Christ, where every person has a place and a purpose, and the power of the Holy Spirit has been given out to you just like it's been given to me. I am no more special than you. In fact, I'm supposed to lower myself and lift you up, that God has called you for a time such as this. You are the last day's church that's about to see Jesus part through that eastern sky. You are about to call to win this world. This is your job to go out and reach the harvest before he comes. That commission is on you. And God has given you the power to do it. You may not believe that. You may not feel it. But the Bible declares it. You have the power of the Holy Spirit right behind you. Jesus Christ who rules this world is for you and not against you. And he has given his life to make a church that survived these 2,000 years for a day like today so that you can be the people of God he's called you to be. Don't doubt what God's done. He's called you. He's equipped you. And he's sending you out. So I exhort you in the name of the Lord. Romans 12 says, like we read this morning, present yourself a living sacrifice. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. This is your reasonable, your spiritual service to the Lord. You see, service in this body is spiritual. You have a table. Find your table. Romans will go on to say, here's how you do that. Love one another with brotherly affection. He says, try to outdo one another in showing honor. He says, don't be slothful, but zealously serving the Lord. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. He says, seek, make an effort to show hospitality. You know what that means? Layman's terms. Invite people over to your house. Have supper with people in your church. Invite people over. Go to coffee with them. Try to meet their needs. Go to their birthday party. Show up at their ball games. Be the people of God and be a community of faith that is reaching this parish for Jesus Christ. Be the church. Be the church. Every church needs more servants at the table. I can't do it. Pastor Christian can't do it. Miss Evelyn can't do it. Craig can't do it. We need people to serve at the table of grace. There is a lost and dying world, and we are missing people every day. There are people falling through the cracks in our churches, people who come and go, come and go. I can't call everybody. I can't go to everybody's house. I can't reach them all by myself. But if we as a family all find our place and our part, 
If we like that band, we come in and we've practiced our positions. We know the notes that God wants us to play. And we come in and we follow the direction together and we will make the most beautiful music the world has ever seen. We will be the most united family. If you're a sports person, we're going to be the team that goes all the way to state. This is going to be a mobilized army for Jesus Christ. If we do our spiritual service. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Uh, ask our team to come. Where's your table? Where's your table? The table of duty and devotion. Church, this is a spiritual work. I'm going to make you this challenge as our, we just get ready to respond. The Lord spoke to me before I came out here this morning just to remind you this is a spiritual service. Sometimes our response now is going to be, oh, I've got to get more involved in church. I've got to do more. I've got to sign up for a team. I've got to give more. I've got to try harder. Jesus doesn't want you to try harder. He doesn't want you to do more. He doesn't want you to give more. He wants you to allow the Holy Spirit to be more inside of you. You see, when the flesh does this, you'll burn out. That's why these pastors have been burning out all across America after COVID. They've been trying to do it in their flesh. The flesh can never please God. You can never do enough to earn God's favor. You can never try hard enough. You try harder, you're just going to burn out quicker. But if the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you, like these early followers, there will be a natural response to God's grace. It'll be like, I want to go. I want to give. I want to go. I want to share. I want to encourage. I want to lift up because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes and grows God's church. We're a spiritual house, a spiritual organism, a spiritual family. There is nothing you or I could ever do to please God. But when the Holy Spirit is at work and we surrender to Him, this thing becomes the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. The most beautiful music. We start winning like we've never won before. Like this early church, they started winning the priests who were Jewish priests. They started winning people they never thought they could win when they said, we will surrender to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Will you do that this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Will you surrender yourself to more of the Holy Spirit? I'm not asking for one volunteer today. I'm asking for you to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Who has God called you to be? What table has He set before you to serve? How can you do your part by the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, I ask you to be in this place today. Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you for making us your body, the body of Christ. We thank you for making us collectively a spiritual temple in which your spirit dwells. I thank you for every member in this body, every person with diversity of gifts, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of experiences. We come from all denominations of different race and cultures and backgrounds and experiences. The body of Christ is a beautiful thing. And it's all united by the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, I pray you bless your church today. Father, I pray for every person to have that unction of the Holy Spirit 
to surrender their self to service, to be a part of the great last days church. And Lord, I pray we start winning. God, I pray we win like we've never won before. Lord, that the lost will come in. That addiction.